0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. We are just days away from the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of its smaller neighbor, Ukraine. February twenty fourth, 2022, marked the start of the biggest air, sea, and ground assault in Europe since the Second World War. Uh, just before the invasion, Ukrainian President Zelensky warned Russia that the consequences would be, quote, an abundance of pain, filth, blood, and death. He went on, this calamity carries a huge cost in every meaning of this word, the Ukrainian president said every hour of every day since has proven those words to be right cataclysmic for ukraine course changing for russia history shaping for the wider world earlier today you heard in our news our us senate passed a 95 billion dollar foreign aid bill 60 billion of it assistance for ukraine this sets up a showdown with the house As the Speaker of the U.S. House, Mike Johnson has criticized the legislation, 22 Senate Republicans, including Iowa's U.S. Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst, bucked a majority of their party and former President Trump in joining Democrats to approve this military assistance. This hour, we put politics of the conflict mostly to the side, though they inevitably enter our conversation to have writers reflect on two years of war in Ukraine. In just a few moments, we'll be joined by Ukrainian writers Askold Melmichek. Also, we hope to have Oksana Lutsishina. Let's start with world traveler, war correspondent, memoirist, poet, Christopher Merrill. For more than 20 years, Chris has directed the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa. In that capacity, he has engaged in numerous missions of cultural diplomacy around the world, including many in war-torn countries, including to Ukraine several times, going back decades. Uh, He's the author of the new book, On the Road to Lviv. Christopher Merrill usually joins me in the Iowa City studio of IPR. Today, I believe, from Mexico, where he's teaching for a couple of weeks. Chris, thank you for joining
1: us. Nice to be with you, Ben. And I am indeed in Mexico. It's very warm here.
0: <laughs> All right. You're reading at an event, and people can see you uh, at an event at Prairie Lights uh, this uh, coming up on Tuesday, February 27th, together. Uh, with Christopher Bolin. I want to mention that. You'll be back for that. And Chris, before I ask you to share from your book a little bit and talk about the experiences that shaped the poetry in that book, uh, reflect for a moment on this anniversary in a few days, this moment, and what happened nearly two years ago.
1: Well, I take the anniversary uh, quite seriously because uh, it happens also to be my birthday. And uh, two years ago, I turned 65 on the same day that the Russian forces launched uh, an extraordinary attack, as you rightly pointed out, the largest attack in Europe since World War II. And what we've seen over these two years is uh, an extraordinary amount of loss of life, loss of blood and treasure, uh, the melding together of coalition in the West to try to oppose authoritarian uh, policies of uh, Vladimir Putin, the head of, of the Russian Federation, and we've seen writers try to deal with the consequences of this uh, this large scale uh, disaster. Uh, from my perspective, uh, it's something that I, I, I feel like I understand because I covered the wars of succession in the former Yugoslavia back in the 1990s uh, and wrote a couple of books about it. And All those same ingredients seem to be operating here a misguided nationalism on the Russian part. They have vastly superior uh, numbers of soldiers they can throw at Ukraine, but also that grit that the small nations of the world to hold out all their hope and, and find ways to survive that initial onslaught. To And in a sort of David and Goliath situation, we come to respect them for what they're trying to do, which is to maintain their country, their traditions, their cultural experience, their literature, in the face of the onslaught from, uh, their, from their neighbors, a completely illegal war of aggression that... Uh, as we approach the second anniversary, seems uh, not to end.
0: Yeah. Uh, Chris, let's go to your book. I want to have a short quote from it here, being as you're on the phone. Let me let me just quote from this, because those who follow news here on IPR will remember this, but here you recount Mario Pol in a poem, a part of uh, this book, and then I'd like to have you go into... Um, uh, Uh, how this uh, book of poetry came about. Uh, This is from your book, The Ruined City of Mariupol, where the remaining soldiers cleaned their guns in the steel plant, counting the detonations, awaiting yet another missile strike, launched to raise their hideout, crushing them under a slab of concrete and rebar. Exhausted men and women who would sleep If only the barbarians stopped shooting long enough to let civilians flee. I'll stop there in this passage, and Chris, and and just have you take up the story of this coming together from your multiple experiences, diplomatic um, uh, missions to Ukraine.
1: Thank you for that, that good reading of it, uh, Ben. Uh, the fact is is that uh, I I know something about what the uh, the determined citizens and soldiers in Mariupol uh, went through, because I was uh, I, I was reporting from the besieged city of Sarajevo during the war, in the former Yugoslavia, the longest siege in modern history, and 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 in, and in such circumstances, you are entirely at the mercy of. The the besiegers, in this case the Russian Federation forces, and uh, in luck. And it's sometimes said that uh, what goes on in, in war is you have long periods of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. In Mariupol that terror went on and on and on. And so uh, what I'm trying to write about in that in that place was just what that experience might have been like for the for the soldiers there who uh, and as we know Mariupol was reduced to it was pretty much leveled and that's the that's what's happened all too often in this war. As for how the book came about, um, I, uh, it, it, my, the program that I run, the International Writing Program, is funded to a considerable degree by the U.S. State Department. And in that capacity, I have gone out from time to time as a cultural envoy. The first mission that I made to uh, Ukraine was in the wake of the, the Orange Revolution back in 2006, and uh, on a drive west from Kiev to Lviv. Uh, In an unheated van, uh, uh, I was so cold that the only way I could keep my teeth from chattering was to just start to describe what I saw outside my window. So the book began as much as as a kind of travelogue about visiting and going to this fabled city of Lviv, and then, of course, I made another mission there right after the Maidan revolution in 2014, uh, which prompted uh, Putin to invade uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions in eastern Ukraine, and then to occupy Crimea. So, when we think about the war that we're celebrating the second anniversary of the invasion, we're also we're we're nine years into uh, the Russian invasion beginning in eastern Ukraine.
0: Yeah, uh, Chris, I hope you have your new book with you. I'll just reintroduce you, and I'd ask you to to read a, a short passage uh, from it. The imagery so stark, so potent in Uh, your work here. Christopher Merrill, my guest, uh, joining us today live from Mexico, where he happens to be teaching, author, essayist, director of the International Writing Program. We'll be joined by Ukrainian writers a little bit later in the program as we mark uh, nearly two years since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this disputed part, and rightly pointed out by Chris, uh, Crimea was invaded um, um, and occupied many years uh, before. Uh, Chris, give us a, a, a passage that uh, that uh, we can latch on to here, and I'm sure more stark imagery of, of what's
1: been happening. Sure. Well, uh, I have a little passage where I'm talking about the Great Ukrainian uh, poet Taras Shevchenko, and and what I seemed to see, what I was seeing there, and uh, this—this is how the section begins: the sandbags piled around the monument in Kharkiv to Taras Shevchenko, poet and founder of a literature and language. The Russian soldiers firing at the city do not believe exists are testimony to some of the ways in which poetic logic can shape experience for generations, unconsciously surviving in a turn of phrase, a cadence or an adage passed along in pillow talk and argument between a couple headed for divorce a week before their neighbors went to war against a ghostly nation resurrected in verse, a black cloud hid a cloud of white. As to that last line is from uh, Shevchenko. And, and, of course, the Russians are trying to say that Ukraine doesn't exist. It's 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 not a distinct culture and language, the Ukrainian language, which is not the truth. In fact, these are distinct cultures and languages. And the Ukrainians are fighting to preserve their way of being in the world, their language, their culture, their customs.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris, we have about a minute before we go to break What can poetry do in the face of this? What is the role of poetry and poets
1: such as yourself at a time of war? Well, poets can't do much to change anything, but they can, uh, in the first instance, bear witness to what is going on and uh, to a catastrophe. So, the determination to get down faithfully in language that we hope will survive what actually is going on at a particular moment in history That's the I think that's the best of what poets can do but they're also laying the groundwork for whatever the future is going to look like because they have a chance to testify to uh, not only dastardly deeds done by the Russian invaders and occupiers but also the heroism of the the Ukrainian fighters who against all odds have managed to hold out for these two years and with any luck and a good vote in the House uh, or at least a chance to vote in the House uh, will have the, the arms to continue to wage this battle.
0: Christopher Merrill with us. He's director of the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa, has had many diplomatic missions, uh, uh, cultural missions to Ukraine. We'll be back and be joined by writers from Ukraine. It's river to river, from IPR News.: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, marking nearly two years since the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, excepting, of course, the invasion of Crimea, which happened back in 2014, the latest invasion on February 24th of 2022. Christopher Merrill with us, joining us from Mexico, where he's uh, teaching for a couple of weeks, uh, uh, director of the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa. Uh, let's invite some others into this conversation. Uh, first of all, Askold Melmichek is with us, Ukrainian author, professor of English at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Askold, welcome to the program.
3: Hi, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. And hey, Chris, nice to hear you and the fabulous poem, uh, which it was a privilege to publish. Yeah. Askold
0: You have a unique Ukrainian background. Bring us up to speed on that before we have your reflections on this ominous anniversary.
3: Uh, Certainly, Ben. You know, first of all, I would just say that I consider myself a Ukrainian-American writer. I mean, I was born in New Jersey in 1954. and uh, um, However, my, my parents were Ukrainian refugees who arrived in the country in 1950 after five years in a refugee camp. And uh, you know they, uh, when they arrived, they fully expected that communism would not endure, the Soviet Union would fall, and they would head back to uh, their homes, uh, which they hated leaving. Uh, as we know, that did not happen. But, uh, in expectation of it, they raised my sister and myself with Ukrainian as our first language, so that uh, I really didn't learn any English until uh, entering the kindergarten. Uh, not an uncommon thing for. Uh, um, immig- uh, refugees and immigrants uh, expecting to return to the homeland. Um, however, uh, once I did learn English, I, I fell in love with the language and uh, began writing in it early and uh, kind of continued up until now. Um, so th- that's a kind of very uh, rough outline of mm-hmm. the of the family background.
0: With with parents refugees as refugees from Ukraine and the story you just told us, um, you know we those refugees your parents must have thought that um authoritarian leaders were on the out um uh you know that's what that war was was fought for and and now we see during these times the resurgence of all kinds of authoritarian uh leaders around the world reflect on this anniversary to come askold
3: uh uh yeah you're you're absolutely right Ben i mean it it, it is stunning to us here uh in this country and i think uh probably less so to some of the people in the areas where the authoritarians have surfaced i know that friends in ukraine have been warning me about uh, what would be happening or what was already happening in ukraine back in 2014 and before then you know the country has been living under the shadow of russia for so long and uh, um, has been uh, invaded by it uh, and has endured uh, despite many prohibitions against the use of the Ukrainian language in the country. Uh, you know, For years, uh, really practically for a century, the, the language was uh, prohibited uh, and uh, literature was not allowed to be published in it. That began in the 19th century. You know? And so uh, Ukrainians and, again, others living under similar circumstances developed uh, a resilience against this sort of authoritarian pressures and they developed a very powerful civil society in part because they did not feel they could trust their government to serve their best interests which is something we saw kind of manifesting most dramatically uh in the, um, uh, first in the orange revolution and then following that in the maidan in 2014 when ukrainians resisted uh the attempts of their then president uh, of to uh, forge a, a new alliance with putin and russia in exactly because they saw themselves as part of a different tradition a democratic tradition that uh, they associated uh, with the west with europe uh, that has been the focus of their aspirations for as long as i can remember you know and i can say that this was true very uh, very personally at, at my home my mother was a um, was an aspiring poet uh in fact i have on my desk a rejection letter from Written by an editor from Lviv, the city about which Chris wrote, uh, in, in, she, he is saying that they invite her to resubmit her new poems uh, in uh, the fall uh, because they think that she's talented and they would publish them. But the letter is dated uh, August 30th, 1939, right before uh, Hitler invaded and and uh, World War One, World War Two began. Um, you know, yeah. so the, the poetry, however, has been so really an important part of the whole sort of process of keeping the language alive, the culture alive, the sense of community uh, among its citizens. Um, yeah. So, that, you know, I- it, yeah, it, it's a terrifying moment uh, right now because the same sort of pressures and assaults that my parents experienced, which forced them out of their homeland, a whole new generation, which had thought it was free of that, are now living through.
0: Yeah, Ascold. Being as this is a, a reflection by writers on this moment here, I, I wonder if you have a passage from your writing to share with our
3: listeners. Um, thanks, Ben. You know what? I'd actually I'd like to do is share um, two po- very short poems that I translated from a mm. Ukrainian poet uh, who is um, who was actually here in Boston, where I'm based, uh, in 2007 as part of a fellowship at my university, which is specifically focused on bringing together people from uh, 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 regions uh, under stress and in trouble. And this is by a young poet. She was a young poet, uh, she was in her thirties in 2007. Mariana Savka, she's one of the country's leading poets and also one of its leading publishers. And I just want to compare a poem that she wrote in 2007 with one that she wrote uh, after the war began. Um, so this first one is called Easter Jazz Sonny Rollins mad and bearded like a god with his sax wild as the wind beating against the door of Symphony Hall prophesizes that spring still has a chance to bloom and the mind loose jazz and my desire and blood blow recklessly through my veins I go, I dance I catch the syncopations Lord of Jazz, bless please, this our Easter. And then you hear in that poem the kind of uh, openness and freshness of youth uh, welcoming uh, life in all its uh, positive energies. Um, And here's a poem that Mariana wrote in which I translated uh, almost two years ago after the start of the war. Mm. It's called, My God Spends All Night. My God spends all night forming his battalions, is a crack shot, wages wars. My God forgives my curses as he polishes his stones. My God won't hide behind my back, throws quilted covers over children. My God buys tourniquets, then lines up to give blood. My God can't get a good night's sleep while an entire country's standing guard. My God, allows me never to forgive, and lets me call things as they are. And I think you hear there very starkly the difference.
0: Oh gosh, yes, and 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 just um, it it really takes your breath away to juxtapose that Sonny Rollins with yeah. My God spends all night. Uh, Chris, yeah. step in here and and, and comment on the uh, on those two poems translated by askold here, if you could.
1: Well, first I want to say how beautiful the translations are and how powerful the poems are. What it made me think was uh, what I experienced in in Bosnia during the war. uh, The poet uh, Goran Sinić a friend of his uh, said that his works were quite hermetic before the, the siege of Sarajevo, mm. and then during the siege he wrote in such a plain and direct way about the sheer horror of what he and his fellow sufferers were living through. And I, I think that uh, Ascol has uh, exactly caught that experience. When you are face facing the abyss, it's time to speak plainly. Yeah. Um,
0: Askold Old Melmichek with us, Christopher Merrill with us as well. Let's introduce a third guest into our conversation who has been in the wings, certainly listening to our conversation. Oksana Lutsyshina is with us, um, uh, Ukrainian novelist, poet, uh, assistant professor of Ukrainian studies at the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, Oksana, are you there? Great to be here. Oksana. Yes, now I think we're hearing you. Oksana, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for taking time here. Tell us a little bit about your background um, here and how you came to the U.S., uh, your current connections with your homeland.
2: Uh, Yes, of course. Well, I came here uh, quite a while ago, and I came here to get my advanced degrees and then stayed here teaching. But I have very close time is ukraine my family is still there of course Uh, they're in the western side of ukraine to Transcarpathia. and uh, also my publisher who actually happens to be mariana sauka whose beautiful poem just uh, read in his translation so i go back and forth quite a bit and i of course participate in every initiative that i can uh, either across the ocean or here in the united states also in austin we have a Very big and strong Ukrainian community who's very active in all possible ways, uh, lobbying with politicians and uh, having community events, raising consciousness and informing the population here about what's going on.
0: Yeah. Oksana, give us a sense since you mentioned your connections with the Ukrainian community here and your connections Mm -hmm. uh, with your fellow Ukrainians back in the homeland. What is the mood right now after nearly two years since this latest Russian invasion?
2: Um, I think the mood is everybody understands that this is a very critical moment, a very difficult moment, perhaps a moment of crisis. But I have not heard any defeatist narratives ever from anyone. I think people are still ready to stay strong and to um, persevere. However, everybody's extremely concerned for many reasons and uh, how, how it's going to be now with the world helping us and how it's going to be with us sending up to Russia. But it's such an old conflict, as Oscar mentioned, that uh, it's kind of, uh, it has these two sides. One is, of course, the shock of war. And the other is that this is a very old enemy uh, with whom I think many generations of us knew sooner or later we will be in the open conflict.
0: Yeah. Uh, Oksana, we've been asking um, you, three writers, to share writing. I don't know if you had a passage already during your work day. Uh, If you don't, please just reflect on the role of writers in this situation.
2: Well, um, it's actually a difficult question, (laughs) more difficult than it would have been in different times, Uh, because so many writers in Ukraine right now are actually just in the army, and uh you know uh that they feel like that's when the where they can be most useful, uh, however, I think it of course very much depends on where you are, depending on your circumstances and uh it's uh one of those tools of cultural diplomacy that is uh, impossible to overestimate. And I'm thinking about all the wonderful poet friends back home and all the great poets here who really helped us so much along the way and who felt our pain as if it was their own. You know, like we were talking about uh, Christopher Merrill's uh, book uh, On the Road to Lviv, and I read it, and I was amazed at how, how detailed it was, how he actually saw everything we saw and how he reflected and everything we reflected. So it's not so much the look of an outsider, it's the look of a real witness. So I think that's how poets feel back home too, it's this job of witnessing. However, uh, Irena Tielik, a Ukrainian poet and very famous filmmaker, uh, once noted that right now in Ukraine everybody suffers from guilt. Those who are not in the country are feeling guilty because towards those who are in the country. Those who are in the country guilty towards those who are in the front lines, and those who are in the front lines and alive are feeling guilty towards those who died. So this is this is one of those destructive elements, of course, that war produces. Uh, but what I'm saying is that the role of poets right now is to also work all that out and to kind of be sure that what you are doing is actually necessary and that there are ways to uh, somehow uh, still keep standing and writing and connecting with people and not shut down because that's what guilt does; it shuts you down.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, Oksana, and I know all three of you knew her well. I think you were a close friend of, when you talk about those lost in this war, uh, Victoria Amelina, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Oksana, uh, she was a close friend of yours. Uh, Tell us uh, about that friendship and the circumstances that led to her death. I'm so sorry. Uh, Yes,
2: of course. Uh, thank you. Uh, Victoria Melina, yes, she's, a, she's an amazing person and it pains me to use this uh, past tense verb on her because I always feel like she's, uh, she's here with us. Uh, my friendship with her started about 10 or 12 years ago, actually in uh, New York City, believe it or not, because we were both there on an occasion and just we never stopped being friends ever since. Victoria uh, her trajectory is kind of unusual she was actually a person who had a very successful career in the IT industry and then at some point uh, her heart was just overflowing because there were so many events happening the revolution of dignity the Euromaidan you know then annexation of Crimea then the war in Donbass and she actually her family she had ties to Donbass so uh, she started writing and she actually left that career to start writing and uh, she started with fiction and then she progressed to poetry and non-fiction. I think life forced her to write poetry. She herself said that she just kind of writes things down on the page as if it was a poem, not prose, and then, then it just becomes a poem somehow because such is, uh, such are the circumstances. And uh, she actually was supposed to go to Paris to finish working on her non book. She was involved with a human rights organization she was riding around the country collecting testimonies of the victims of Russian occupation and at literally at the last minute before she had to leave Kiev and go west she had a children's camp to that she was also attending uh, in the Carpathian mountains and then Paris she um, meets uh, a Colombian delegation uh, of writers and journalists and she wants to accompany them to the city of Kramatorsk uh, where unfortunately the Russian missile wounds her mortally and eventually she dies in several days. So it's a huge strategy for all of us and uh, she, she, she really was one of those people who had so much empathy towards everyone, who managed to give something uh, to her friends. And she had many friends, actually. So uh, a lot of us are grieving and mourning. And I think that uh, she will, you know, there will never be another Victoria. And we will always think about her.
0: Yeah, we have about a minute before we need to take a break. Uh, askold can I ask you briefly to comment on Victoria? I know you knew her as well.
3: Yeah, um, thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, a remarkable person, as Oksana just said, and uh, somebody that I met uh, in here while she was living here with her family in Boston, and uh, attended a reading that I had organized, and uh, we. Well, our first conversation I remember was about her travels through Tibet. Uh, she was looking for places to study meditation here in Boston. A very kind of sweet and open hearted and and. Uh, Um, warm person as as an Irish writer said about her you know you meet her and she waltzes right into your heart you know so we just uh, became very friendly and uh, exchanged writing and talked about writers we loved um, and then, um, through a kind of wonderful kind of coincidence, Christopher, who has brought so many writers together in the course of his storied career, okay. um, asked uh, uh, Victoria and myself to teach for him. Now, should I continue this after the break? It sounds like the music. Yeah, gets, let's uh, let's up. do
0: that. Yeah, you yeah. hear the music. Okay. We'll take a break. Yeah. Back with uh, right. Askold Melmachek and other writers in just a moment. Stay tuned. It's River to River from IPR News.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Witness uh, a word coming up again and again uh, with our perspectives from three writers, reflecting on nearly three two years uh, since the invasion uh, by uh, Russian forces of uh, Ukraine. Uh, with us today, Askold Melmichek, uh, Ukrainian-American uh, writer, Oksana Lutsyshina, um, uh, Ukrainian novelist and poet, and uh, Christopher Merrill of the University of Iowa's international writing program. When we had to break away, Askold, you were uh, talking about... Um, uh, a writer lost in this war, uh, a Russian rocket, if I'm recalling that news from a couple of years ago, um, hitting a cafe, killing and uh, many and, and wounding many others. So continue on, Oskold.
3: Um Yeah, and if I may, just to offer a little bit of a, a, a background, uh, because you and Chris spoke about what the importance of writers might be in a time of war. and I want to just underscore that in Ukraine, writers occupy singularly important um position in part because of Ukrainian history. And the poet that Christopher uh, mentioned, uh, who surfaces in his poem, Taras Shevchenko, a 19th century poet, uh, who was born in 1814. Was, he was born a serf. Uh, uh, his owner um, recognized his talent and uh, sent him to study art in St. Petersburg, where other artists recognized his gifts both as a painter and as a poet, they bought his freedom. And one of the things he did with that freedom was begin to write poetry in Ukrainian, a language which was uh, prohibited by the Russian Empire at the time. He spent much of his time uh, in jail and in in exile. And uh, uh, at the same time, what he did was he wrote about the experience of the people, of the peasants, among whom he had been raised. It was the first time that the people of Ukraine actually saw their lives reflected in writing. They heard about their lives, and that mattered to them. It helped develop their consciousness, their self-awareness, and their sense of rights. Um, you know, And so um, that sense of the importance of language and poetry is, partic- is really singular in Ukraine. You'll find a statue to Tarashevchenko, a poet, in just about every town and village in the country. So flash forward then into the 1930s, and you see again, Um, The ways in which writers appear to be threatening to an authoritarian regime because of their power of witnessing, when Stalin uh, destroys a whole generation of writers, uh, something like 250 writers uh, uh, were uh, were lost uh, in the 1930s during what is known as the executed renaissance, where the intellectuals and cultural figures of the country were um, executed uh, or exiled uh, and and, uh, disappeared. And so it's against this background that uh, writers like Oksana Lutsichna and Victoria Melina and others are working, this awareness that they, as the avatars and speakers and and, uh, carriers of cultural memory, are likely to be the targets should Russia win. I I remember this in part because Victoria Melina, whose story I'm about to finish, um, uh, at a reading that I had organized with American and Ukrainian writers, including writers like Robert Pinsky, the former poet laureate, and Uh, uh, James Wood of The New Yorker, uh, at the end of that reading, uh, Victoria uh, said, um, asked the audience, uh, this was being done on Zoom, and we had a worldwide audience, and Victoria said, stay with Ukraine, either we win or we will be dead. You know, it's that sense of existential moment that is uh, what is driving, I think, so much of the creative energies of the country. So Victoria, um, so Christus, I was saying that, that Christopher actually um, helped me bond with Victoria by inviting both of us to co-teach a class for the uh, via the University of Iowa's International Writing Program for Ukrainian students who were scattered all across the country. Obviously, schools were not functioning at this time in any regular way, and so we met on Zoom over the course of uh, a summer or a month in the summer. And uh, in that time, what was so remarkable uh, about that experience was that Victoria and the students would be uh, meeting with me uh, on Zoom, uh, and I would hear air raid sirens in the background uh, during our class, during our two-hour sessions. And hmm. not a single person ever left the session uh, because they were so, it was so important for them to connect and communicate. You know, the desire to be seen, the desire to know that you are being witnessed is, I think, a profound uh, longing on the part of those who are under siege. Um, and it is why the work of, of cultural emissaries like Christopher and the work that you are doing by highlighting our voices at this moment is so, so important. What, you've, uh, what people under those circumstances worry most about is what can be done and what is done in the dark. Um, so, ten... so that was so anyway. Yeah, that was um. Yeah, that was Victoria.
0: Yeah, I want to remind those who may have just joined us. um uh, uh We have about ten minutes left of our program. Ask Melnichek, uh, Ukrainian American uh, writer, Oksana Lutsishina, and uh, Christopher Merrill here. Chris, I haven't had you uh, a moment for you to reflect on Victoria, her life, um, uh, and and uh, because I know this this was a. Uh, Uh, a meaningful uh, person in your life as well.
1: Well, uh, Askold very brilliantly talked about what Victoria is all all about, and I was so thrilled to have Askold and Victoria teach our class. We called it Crafting the Future in Ukrainian, uh, which actually provided us with a new model for thinking about some of our digital learning classes. But I also then had the good luck to host uh, Victoria and several other Ukrainian writers in a small conference in northeastern Poland, uh, November of 2022, about uh, seven months before Victoria would tragically lose her life. And what I saw of her during those five days we were together was... How uh, how disarmingly brilliant she is! She had a very dry sense of humor, and she managed to cut through all the cant uh, in, in in just moments. And uh, she was somebody who, one of those writers who reminds us of what it means to be a writer and puts us on the on the straight and narrow, if you will. She was a kind of moral yeah. conscience for so many people thinking about this war.
0: In the final 10 minutes or so of this conversation, I wanted to just kind of probe all three of you for maybe some stories, images, a conversation you've had perhaps with uh, Ukrainians, perhaps Ukrainian writers uh, currently in Ukraine. Oksana, you talked about you having so much contact with family and, and friends in Ukraine. What does do our listeners most need to Understand about the situation in Ukraine right now, perhaps clearing up misconceptions. What should we hear via you from Ukrainians?
2: Uh, well, um, uh, I think uh, we do need to tell people about our history as much as we can, and I'm glad Askel talked a little bit about Taras Shevchenko, who is considered the nation maker. Um, and also that uh, this uh, the, this is not uh, the situation where Ukraine is actually part of Russia and somehow was part of Russia. This, this is uh, just plain not true. It's a different nation. We want to be seen as such. And uh, we also want the world to make room for us to tell our story. And when I say tell our story, I mean to have all these in, in, innate meanings uh, somehow more obvious, you know, when you see uh, artifacts and you think Ukraine, you don't just think, you know, Russia or something else. When you hear a song and you know, okay, it's Ukraine. And actually, uh, a great example would be the Carol of the Bells, which is a, a song that's uh, based on Ukrainian folk songs and uh, written by Mykola Leontovich, who was killed by uh, the Soviets in 1921. So basically... Uh, and, and we need more of that. We need to put, put these meanings forth a little bit more so that we are more recognized. And uh, I think this will really uh, help us and I think help the world, too, essentially.
0: Yeah. Asgol, can I return to you and talk about the, the current um, isolationism that is in our country right now and uh really at the foundation of this controversy, this debate over whether Ukraine should receive further uh, financial and military funding. How do you see that? Certainly understandable when you look around our country that uh, we have multitudes of problems uh, to solve here. Why should uh, Ukraine receive so much aid in, in your view? How do you view this debate?
3: Um, Yeah, thank you, Ben. Um, An important question. And uh, I think it's um, um, by recognizing that it's one common problem, the problems that we have here in this country and the problems that Ukrainian are are experiencing, in fact, um, share uh, many, uh, um, many aspects. But first, I want to begin with a shout out and thank you to your two senators, Charles Grassley and Joni Ernst, for voting to support the um, the aid bill that has just been passed by the Senate. And I'm certainly hoping that your representatives, Marionette Miller-Meeks and Ashley Hinston and Randy Feenstra and Zach Nunn, um, take a cue from their uh, senior colleagues in the Senate. Um, uh, it, because uh, without the sort of support that the U.S. has offered, uh, I'm afraid that uh, Europe will not be able to do enough to support Ukraine in its resistance. Now, what is at stake here is Um, First of all, a a whole system of values. Um, If there is something that we consider um, uh, singular about democracy, it is the encouragement that it offers for a plurality of voices and opinions to rise up um, and in vigorous debate and find some kind of common ground through which to forge an identity based not on race and ethnicity or religion, but on uh, common values that is I think what the American ideal has been, and it's the ideal to which Ukraine is aspiring. Only consider what it is asking for it is asking to become part of europe Europe has been um the u you s know, our own our country's ally for uh you know it it, it is where it is uh the a part of the world that hatched this country. And uh, it is a part of the world to which so much of this country is connected. That is what Ukraine is longing for and aspiring to and has demonstrated its capacity for embodying value, democratic values. It is uh, for that, uh, for, for individual freedom and a uh, sense of um, hope for the future in every way. Um, you know, the, the kind of environmental concerns that are prevalent here are essential in Ukraine. If you um, um, you can look up stories about the ways in which um, you, Ukrainian soldiers and escaping refugees have treated uh, animals at a time of war and tried to preserve their lives, you begin to recognize what we have in common with them, and that is a concern and care for our neighbors, uh, each other, and each other. And I would also only point out that it was the Estonian, uh, I think, president just uh, or prime minister who. Um, the other day point, uh, pointed out that they uh, the countries immediately bordering Russia on the north are confident that should Ukraine fall to Russia, should the U.S. pull away, uh, Russia would not stop with Ukraine, but would continue to try to push at and recreate a Russian empire that absorbs uh, more of its neighbors. So there are many, many reasons that we should be concerned with it. But above above all, it is that sense of common values of human decency and dignity, um, freedom for all to worship as they will, to uh, pursue their own personal paths as they see fit. That is, I think, what binds us uh, with those who share those values around the world.
0: Yeah. Christopher Merrill, we have two or three minutes left um, with the future of Ukraine hanging in the balance, literally Uh, What are your thoughts as we look forward and consider, as Askold just addressed, what is at stake?
1: Well, what Askold said is exactly what I think about these issues. And I would just simply add one thing, and that is that when we think about the, the sheer amount of money we're talking about in this Senate bill, and I very much hope that our representatives uh, push the Speaker of the House to have an up and down vote on it i 'm mindful of the fact that that money is actually going to the Pentagon to buy arms that are almost all produced in the United States, including in in Iowa so the money that's going that we that one side of the argument might say is going to ukraine it 's actually it's American money going to american uh, companies and American employees in order to bolster the Ukrainian defenses. And it's important to remember that uh, for just a a really a pittance of money, given the trillions of dollars that we have uh, devoted to military spending over the years to uh, stave off an invasion from the Soviet Union, we've managed to destroy a considerable chunk of the Russian armed forces without losing a single American life. That's something that we need to keep in mind going forward. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping that that, uh, that that large consensus in the middle that we need to defend the values of civilization, defend democracy, will win out and that uh, the, the money will go forward and the Ukrainian people will continue to fight to preserve that, that understanding of what it means to be a human being.
0: Oksana, in the final minute or so, what thoughts do you want to leave us with? Uh, perhaps uh, um, something that has been up uh, unsaid at, at up to this moment, this hour.
2: Um, I think uh, Askold and uh, Chris pretty much summed it up and I really like what they mentioned about the values that this is really um, important and I myself support some friends who actually save animals that... Have suffered because of uh, this war. Um, yeah, I just uh, want people to um, not forget us and to keep supporting us because this is essentially support of democracy as a world institution.
0: Chris, I want to circle back to a, a reading event if. Uh people would like to meet you, hear you read from your latest uh, work uh, on the road to Lviv, Uh, they can do so February 27th at Prairie Lights in downtown Iowa City. You'll be giving a reading there uh, with writer Christopher Bolin. And war is a theme, I understand, that ties yours and his work together for this reading.
1: Exactly. And uh, it it gives us a chance to address in person what the consequences of war can be for for all involved, whether they are on the front in Ukraine or in the cities under shell fire or representing and hoping that the rest of the world will come along. We're, We're all in this together, whether we know it or not.
0: Christopher Merrill joining us today from Mexico. Of course, he's director of the University of Iowa International Writing Program. Chris, uh, we look forward to having you back here in Iowa. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ben. And thanks, uh, indeed, heartfelt thanks uh, to Oksana Lutschina and Oskold Mel uh, Melnichek, And uh, thank you for your views as well.
3: Thank you so much, Ben, for taking the time to speak with us and uh, for uh, supporting this issue. Oksana, thank, so thank you. Thank
0: Bye you,
2: Ben.
3: Bye.
0: Tomorrow, tomorrow, it's a Politics Wednesday, and, and we will indeed talk about the vote that took place early this morning. Um, U.S. Senators Joni Ernst and Chuck Rashley breaking with their party, voting for that aid, not only for Ukraine, but also Israel and Taiwan. Our analysts tomorrow, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Karen Kudrowski of Iowa State University. Today's River to River, produced by Kate Perez and... Caitlin Troutman with help from Samantha McIntosh. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for
1: joining us.